2: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is George Mufaraj, a leading relationship counselor and author of the book Sexual Euphoria. Uh, Today we're talking about how social media drives narratives. Uh, particularly with, uh, it allows people to reconnect with long lost friends and long lost romantic partners, and it has become a tool for many unhappy relationships. In or to find, it helps someone or helps individuals or couples to find someone to cheat with. So, with all the potential dangers in social media to relationships, some wonder if the way to guarantee faithfulness is to give your partner your social media passwords i um, not sure about that, but here to discuss it with me is relationship counselor, expert, George Mufaraj. How are you this morning, George? I'm
3: doing fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show.
2: Oh, Well, great to have you on the show, but let's start talking now about how social media drives this particular narrative. Very interesting, and uh, I've read a lot about this, actually. I mean, apparently this is happening in numbers. I don't know if we have the stats in terms of how many relationships develop from these social uh, Facebook relationships, people going back and connecting with their old high school boyfriend after you know and being married for sixteen years and then suddenly marriage ends and they go back with with the person they were with in high school yeah. or college yeah
3: there aren't any concrete uh, figures about that, but uh, there's quite a, a significant number of people um, uh, reconnecting with uh, old flames and uh, having the old uh, flame between them rekindled. And that leads to infidelity in their current relationship
2: well, some people argue that in order for this not to happen, one of the causes of it is apparently is uh, if you gave your your social media password to your partner or your spouse, this wouldn't happen because you would have you could you know you, their your spouse's uh, Facebook page or whatever it is is available to you all your private stuff is on social media is would be available to your partner. Do you think that's a good thing? Is that going to prevent these kinds of relationships from happening?
3: Um, I, I think uh, that will decrease um, the the uh, probability of uh, infidelity happening because uh, the partner would be looking at um, the person's uh, dialogue with uh, members of the opposite side. Um, however, I don't think it's a good idea to do so because... Uh, If a person does so, it would create unnecessary problems in the relationship. Um, If there is, like, innocent flirting going on, um, the partner might assume that there's an affair going on and it it might cause unnecessary problems in the relationship. Even if uh, the partner believes that an affair isn't going on, he or she will still be jealous because of uh, the innocent flirting and this will lead to problems. So it, it might... Not be such a good idea to to give the password, so to avoid unnecessary problems. Also, a partner. But George, what about
2: privacy? Privacy. I mean, to me, when I hear that, it screams out. I don't want someone having my password, no matter whom I'm talking to. Whether it's my girlfriend or my ordering stuff from the grocery store or whatever. I mean, then you just you've got this other person who's just fully connected to you in every way and knows every person that you're having contact with, I would think that that would be a, a, a really, really negative impact on the, on a relationship.
3: You mean talking yeah, about I,
2: trust.
3: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, uh, a person will feel suffocated in the relationship that uh, he doesn't have any privacy, that uh, this person, his partner, is being involved in every aspect of his life. So, uh, uh, usually people in relationships want some privacy, some time for for themselves, uh, some uh, time uh, with their own friends without their partner being involved. So the privacy issue is another reason why not to give out uh, the uh, password. Uh, Also, uh, a, a partner might become jealous that the person is connected to a large number of people of the opposite sex and might feel insecure in the relationship. That's another reason why not to give out uh, the password.
2: Who's advocating that, by the way? Are there social scientists, counselors, therapists? I um, mean, who, who is recommending that you ha- actually give your password to
3: your partner? Um, it's like uh, some people, some uh, psychologists, some uh, experts on relationships um, that uh, thought about it and they 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 can, some advocate given the password some don't but uh, i think the majority think that uh, it, like given the password is too much because a person needs privacy and it uh, leads to unnecessary problems
2: what about uh is social media actually the problem for cheating or is it something else
3: um social media can increase the uh, possibility of cheating and uh, according to uh, different studies done Um, social media has caused a significant uh, number of relationships um, to suffer infidelity. And uh, one reason why it increases uh, the probability of cheating is because a a person can connect with a large number of uh, members of the opposite sex easily. Um, Before social media was invented, it was hard for a person to meet a large number of people from the opposite sex it took time and effort for a person to meet members of the opposite sex. Now using social media, a person can connect with hundreds of people from the opposite sex easily just with a click of uh, a few buttons on the computer. It doesn't take any time or effort like before.
2: So the solutions have to be different. I mean, this is a new issue. This is a new uh, – it's a very new concept, I guess, in terms of relationships. So just by putting – sort of a lock on people's avail- availability to have privacy. That's really not the answer. It seems to me we have to be more creative. Don't we have to come up with new kinds of, of creative ways of maintaining a, a secure relationship with the person you're with, even though you have all these contacts? Because you're always going you, These contacts, we have them. This, social media is here to stay. And so what would be some of the solutions...
3: Yeah, I agree with you that uh, it's going to stay here, and people have to come up with different ways other than giving the password to keep the relationship secure. And one way to keep the relationship secure is communication. By uh, both people communicating with each other, all their feelings, this contributes to intimacy, and it makes them close to each other, and it decreases the possibility that one of the people in the relationship will, will cheat.
2: As you're talking, I'm thinking of another perhaps uh, a positive thing about social media is that uh, before social media, people got married. They were with the same person day in and day out. They got bored, um, unhappy, uh, and maybe didn't necessarily have a good communication skills, and they had no access to the opposite sex. This way, you do have access to the opposite sex. It may add a little bit of a excitement to having communication with somebody outside your marriage and maybe you'll appreciate your marriage or your relationship more because you don't feel so confined
3: um yeah i agree with you that uh, another way of looking at it is that way however um social media it's dangerous in a way because um if, if Before social media was invented, if a person was spending uh, uh, time with a member of the opposite sex that's a stranger, um, he, he would uh, think about it uh, a great deal. To him, it would be a great deal. To other people, it would be a great deal. But now with social media, a person can f- spend uh, a large amount of time with a member of the opposite sex uh, uh, with a person that's a stranger and uh, he or she wouldn't think about it uh, as a big deal. To him, it, it might seem as harmless, as nothing. And this attitude increases the possibility that cheating might occur in the relationship because uh, the person is uh, becoming closer to a stranger. He's becoming more intimate to a stranger. But is uh, it a
2: real – I'm going to interrupt you, George, because is it really intimacy? I mean, you're just online talking to the person or having this connection. How intimate is that really? I mean, you're not there on a day-to-day basis having to solve problems, live together, uh, interact with your community, your family, uh, which involves intimacy. Uh, Is it really intimacy when you're just connecting on Facebook or Twitter or whatever?
3: Yeah, some people start spending uh, uh, a, good, uh, amount, a good amount of time with uh, uh, a person of the opposite sex uh, from time to time on social media. And uh, this might lead to intimacy because if they're spending all this time and they're talking about uh, different uh, uh, issues, they become close. And this closeness might uh, lead to uh, infidelity. And the relationship.
2: When you talk about infidelity, let's talk about infidelity and social media. Does that mean that they can have? Well, we, you know, well, there's phone sex. There's you can have sex on on your iPad. You can have sex on your computer. Is that can it lead? Is that what oh, people are doing? Uh,
3: when I, when I'm talking about infidelity, I mean uh, the, the actual uh, physical sexual relations. Um, but but uh, before that. Uh, uh, it, it might lead to um, uh, sex texting or f- uh, phone sex or um uh, like uh, talking dirty on the computer but but eventually uh, it, 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 all this might lead to the physical act
2: but i't the last comment you just made what are you saying this may be uh, what this is lead to the the actual physical act is that what you're saying yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. Because but people would want to act on those emotions eventually.
2: But are you and in, are, haven't you already or I'm asking you the question. Aren't you, know. you not faithful if you're having sex on your computer with somebody in in uh, cyberspace or is yeah, phone yeah. sex and infide- are you being not faithful if you're having phone sex or sex on your iPad or sex with on uh, the computer with another with a partner other than your spouse is that infidelity?
3: Yeah, because like you're becoming uh, emotionally and uh, erotically, emotionally involved with someone else. So in a way, it's infidelity. But uh, 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 most of the time, it, the people will want to act on those emotions, and they, they feel strange. They feel distant from the current partner that they have. They start feeling closer to the the uh, uh, buddy on uh, Facebook or Twitter.
2: So it is, you are unfaithful. I mean, I guess that would be defined yeah. as, as, as not being faithful. So what do we do about it?
1: Um, I mean, you talk well, about
2: communication. That's kind of, that's true. That's, that's a. I think that's a given right. in any relationship. If you want to be close to somebody, you have to be able to communicate with them. But still, right. I think the, pro, you know, the problem is still there, or the issue is still there. I mean, you yeah. still, have yeah. So I
3: think... An- we, another way to, to deal with it is for the uh, person for all people to recognize that this problem is out there and they should make it a, a point not, not to get um, too emotionally involved with uh, a stranger uh, of the opposite sex on uh, social media because they should, they, they should be aware that this might lead to problems and to infidelity. By just a person being aware of that, it will decrease the chances of it happening. And if a person puts an effort uh, to do that to avoid um, being intimate with someone uh, on uh, Facebook or Twitter, that will decrease the chance of it happening.
2: But what about the different generations and the <clears throat> like the younger people who grew up in face who just have grown up on Facebook as opposed to say the older people or you know, in their 40s and 50s who it's relatively new in terms of uh, interfering with their relationships. Uh, do young people have a different perspective? Are they, are they taught differently? Do they are they being taught how to use the their computers differently or establish relationships differently online? Because it would seem to me they have a very different attitude because they've they've grown up with social media. That's part of who they are, part of their life, part of who, who, how they communicate.
3: Um, I, I I I think they they need to be informed. They need to be educated of the dangers that social media poses to relationships. I think they're just like everyone else. They're unaware of the danger that uh, social media poses to their relationships.
2: Can social media be a plus, be a good thing for a relationship, and how would you do that?
3: Can you read the question? I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. can social media, it doesn't necessarily have to be a danger to a relationship. Like, it could be a good thing. Let's say you have a husband or a spouse or a wife or whoever it is who travels a lot on business. And and, and before, when that occurred, let's say somebody who was always um, traveling and wasn't at home, that was detrimental to the relationship because the couple didn't have an opportunity to be together and to communicate. But now they do because they can communicate through social media. So that's a plus for an intimate relationship between partners and yeah, between I, spouses.
3: I agree. And also, even if, if both people are uh, living in the same house and they, each one goes to a different job, they can use social media to communicate throughout the day, and that makes them closer. So it's a good thing. Also, another way to make social media um, strengthen the relationship is to talk good things about uh, your spouse on social media, and and that senses the relationship and keeps uh, other people away from yourself. So
2: all right, so that's the plus, and I, I think uh, maybe if we emphasize that rather than all maybe than the negatives, but emphasize what you can do to enhance your relationship using social media. Maybe you can, uh, you know, you can set up scenarios. You're dating your husband, and you're on social media, and uh, you can be creative about that, or or your wife, or or whomever um, that
3: your uh, partner no. is. Yeah, some some people if uh, they force. Post- uh, pictures of uh, them with their partner, uh, showing their physical affection or uh, having a good time being together and uh, say good comments about their partner and about their relationship. It will uh, set the relationship will make both people feel closer to each other. Plus, it will keep uh, other people that are uh, looking for a partner away from uh, those two people because they know that they're taking, that they're in love to try to annoy them.
2: When we talk about social media, what tools, what are we talking about? We're talking primarily about Facebook, Instagram, what?
3: Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, stuff like that.
2: Yeah, so are, do you actually, are you a clinician? Do you actually see people in therapy or in counseling?
3: Um, no, uh, I'm a writer uh-huh. and I'm an expert on the topic, I've done many interviews, but I don't do any counseling with people. Yeah, so
2: you are a relationship counselor and you've done research and you're writing because I have yeah. my question. Yeah, okay, because I wondered, uh, you know, just in terms of your clinic, if you had a clinical practice no, or what the statistics were on, on couples who are, are doing this. Um, are there any forums? I mean, you know, I'm a social worker. I mean, are there any. I mean, you know the research on this because it would seem to me this is something uh, that would need to be taught in schools of social work, psychology, uh, psychiatry. It's it's kind of a whole new uh, arena for communicating in relationships. And, and uh, is it in the curriculum of any of these, like, graduate programs?
3: Um, I think some uh, uh, counselors, like uh, psychologists, marriage counselors, Um, psychiatrists, they're now becoming aware of uh, the dangers of social media and the positive aspects of social media, and they're including them uh, in their uh, counseling. They're making their clients aware of them.
2: It seems to me the media... Yeah, go
3: ahead. Yeah, yeah, so I think uh, uh, people now are becoming aware of it, and uh, they're using it to their advantage.
2: Yeah, it seems to me though the media focuses on it's always the dangers of social media, how bad it is, how rather than focusing or emphasizing kind of the the good stuff that comes out of social media. I mean that's just my experience. If I go online, whatever you know, it's always like oh, social media, kids, it, bullying, um, you know, and they have all of these topics that are always sort of emphasizing the bad. Uh, with, you know
3: the the repercussions
2: yeah. of using social media in a bad way.
3: Yeah, I think I think the reason is because I was reading uh, an, a study that they did on the, that was available on the internet, and it said that by, that around one third of managers in the United States last year they claimed that uh, uh, Facebook or, uh, or what, another form of social media was one of the reasons. For the divorce, it wasn't the sole purpose, the sole reason of the uh, divorce, but it was one of the factors. So that's why uh, uh, people are making a big deal about it. Yeah,
2: but I think you have to maybe repeat that again. It's just one of the factors. I mean, if you have, and I I was online looking at some of these uh, examples of people on social media and then you know getting a having a relationship and then breaking up their marriage but if you really look into the marriage and the relationship you can see that it
3: probably there was deterior yeah available yeah but but yeah. but it, social media did contribute to it yeah
2: it's it contributes and i think that's the word but not the cause yeah. it's really yeah. not the cause it's the marriage itself or the relationship itself was not strong to begin with and people right. were searching for something Else. And, obviously, when they get online, they can find something else. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a contributor.
3: Right. And another reason why uh, social media uh, might increase the chances of cheating occurring is because uh, when a person is dealing with members of the opposite sex using social media, it seems impersonal. Um, he, he usually sees, like, a photo, and he's just typing in uh, stuff, yep. So it seems impersonal. Whereas if he were to meet the person in person, um, he's talking to the person, and he's seeing the person in flesh, it's more personal. When it's impersonal, a person tends to talk more deeper stuff. He talks more about uh, deeper inner feelings. Uh, He talks about stuff that he normally wouldn't talk about. And this causes both people to become uh, more emotionally... Connected on a deeper level when they communicate on social media than if they were to meet in, in person, and that's another factor why uh, infidelity increases when you talk, when you're dealing with uh, social media because most people connect on a deeper level because it seems impersonal they're just seeing like uh, a person's photo and they're seeing uh, the type of stuff in, so they start uh, describing their feelings more and they're not afraid to describe their inner feelings because if they don't like the person they're dealing with on social media, they can just disconnect and and no more talk to them.
2: Yeah, But is it really, in reality, is it really connecting on a deeper level? It's more of a superficial deeper level because this person, you are the only, you're connecting with this person, but you're not seeing this person in the context of work, in the context of talking to your friends or being a parent or communicating with your kids. So you're just seeing them sort of in this idealized setting because there's nothing, there's no outside um, stressors or anything that impacts on the relationship. You know what I mean? So that you're not, so you don't see them in a bad, it's always, it's it's in a good light. It's what they decide to present to you, but you don't see them in connection with the outer world or interacting with the rest of the world, which is what, you know, yeah.
3: But 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 you, you, like people tend to sh- talk more uh, deeper stuff about their feelings, stuff that they wouldn't normally talk about, and that uh, that might cause them to become on a deeper level connected. So that's will share things
2: sh- you're saying because it's not as threatening.
3: Yeah, because it seems impersonal, and th- they can always disconnect with with that stranger. It's like like uh, a colleague at work that they would have to deal with. Always, if they don't like him, if they don't like the person, uh, on social media they can just disconnect. So they're more uh, free to be themselves and to talk their inner feelings. And that's why. I wonder why what happens
2: he, when, when, this actually, you know, as you're describing the relationship, that you okay, it's a, you feel like it's a deeper connection. I mean, I think you maybe share more intimate things. I'm not sure that really is a deeper connection. And I wonder what happens when people actually do leave their Partners or their spouses and then connect with the person on Facebook and how long those relationships last once they're actually together physically in person.
3: Yeah, but, but usually they don't leave their partner right, right away until they've met the other person in the flesh and uh, they, they, they've started with the, a relationship with the other person in the flesh. It's not like uh, they become close on the... Internet, and right away they tell their partner, I want to leave you. They, they, they start meeting as friends in the flesh after that. And then and then it develops into an affair. Well, how, and, how do they uh, do what?
2: that? Let's say if they're this person who they've connected with on, on uh, social media doesn't live in the same town as they do. I mean, perhaps they're... Uh, well, let's talk about high school friends, because they are high school boyfriends and girlfriends. I think that happens. or I hear that it happens a lot. So they're in... California? I mean, I'm just talking from a practical standpoint. How do they actually get together?
3: Yeah, some some people just uh, drive uh, long distances. If they're living like, in different states, sometimes they travel, they, they, they take time off of work and they travel using the plane and uh, meet with each other.
2: So they actually physically will start dating across the country or in a different state or a different city if they feel like they They've, yeah, they've
3: they connected. have a strong connection, yeah. Uh, they, they start a long-distance relationship until uh, they, they feel that this person is the right person for them. Then uh, they leave their current relationship.
2: Well, it seems to me that wouldn't be too easy to do. I mean, because your spouse or your partner is going to know that you're leaving or you're not there or where are you going. Or, I mean, I'm not sure how that in practice works.
3: Yeah, yeah. some of them make up, uh, they make up lies. They tell the partner they're going out with a, a, a friend of the same gender. And they, they have their friend cover for them, saying that they were together.
2: So in other words, That's they'll say they've way. connected with a long-lost girlfriend or something, and then they're going to see their girlfriend? or. or,
3: or, or, or no, uh, a friend, uh, like if it's a woman and she has a female friend, she might tell her female friend, to tell, her, to tell the husband that uh, they were out together at the mall and, or they spent the day together while, while she's uh, meeting with the, the guy that she met uh, on Facebook.
2: So, uh, there's a whole new set of, I guess, rules for infidelity when you're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, we only have a couple minutes left, so let's talk. What, what, what do we want to leave our listeners with? I mean, uh, what, I mean, what can they do um, to prevent, obviously, this from happening and social media having affairs or affairs resulting from their relationships on social media? Can we kind of sum it up in a couple sentences?
3: Yeah. Um, the, the first and most important thing is communication. Talk about uh, everything in the relationship. Uh, don't assume that your partner is a mind reader. And uh, if your partner is reluctant to talk, um, draw him or her out by asking them questions about their feelings, what they like, what they don't like, what's bothering them, and that will greatly decrease the chances of infidelity happening uh, because of social media. And, great, uh, good advice.
2: I, Thanks for uh, it's great okay. having you on the show again. Good topic, okay. timely topic, um, and uh, social media and uh, affairs, uh, George Mufarrij. Relationship counselor and author of the book Sexual Euphoria.
3: Thank you very I'm, much.
2: Thank you. I'm Catherine Zach, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to the Catherine Zach show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away.
4: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station.
1: VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Crystal Walker. Crystal Walker is a D.C.-based lawyer, wife, and mother of four. Uh, who recently, I'm not sure now how recently it has been, but has arrived from the glorious Midwest. She's author with Phoebe Thompson of the book Desperate in D.C., Money, Marriage, and Manners in Washington, D.C. Um, and she's become an expert in D.C. on all of those issues, money, marriage, and manners, which I think covers most, uh, most every, a lot of the uh, human behavior. Anyway, uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, healthy... Eating, and it's particularly healthy eating with our children. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Crystal. Catherine, thank you for having me. Okay, well this is a hot topic, feeding your children and feeding them well because, and we don't have to go through all the statistics, but we are an obese society uh, not just overweight, but obesity, I guess. More than, half of, more than half of us are overweight and another third are obese. And so it really starts with our children, feeding our children. And apparently Michelle Obama, who is graduated, has a Harvard degree, Harvard Law School, undergraduate at Princeton, admitted on television that she herself didn't know how to feed her children properly. So if she can't do it, how can the rest of us do it? Well, you, can you answer that question?
5: Well, I I think that's a great question, Catherine. And I would say in, you know, uh, Michelle Obama's defense that I think that the challenge may be less about what we should feed them and how to get it done with, uh, the you know, chaos we all have in our lives and the resistance we encounter with our children. So um, I do think she was right about saying, you know, proper nutrition is not, unless you seek it out, even a class that's, you know, of the curriculum at Harvard or Princeton, where she attended. So for any of us um, new to, you know, motherhood, it's really something you have to navigate on your own, and there isn't a lot of guidance. So uh, you can find yourself, you know, working, mothering, and doing all the rest of the activities you need to in your life and realize suddenly that, you know, getting your kids fed um, may not be done properly. So I think I think it was brave of her to acknowledge that. Um, I think uh, some people have suggested she certainly had a lot of help doing it, so shouldn't complain, but I think she was really just trying to bring about a larger awareness of the issue and, you know, help all of us know that um, that we're all a bit confused and that there is
2: support and resources uh, to get our kids fed right. right. Yeah. In other words, we're all struggling, no matter where we come from. You know, as a working parent, and most of us today are working parents. Uh, one parent's working, but most cases, two parents working, traveling on business, busy husbands, busy wives. So it it, it is a struggle. It's a challenge. It is a challenge. Now, you have four kids. Um, how do you do? How old are your kids? And and how do you do it? How do you make well, healthy? Yeah. Help them to make healthy choices and eat, to eat well. Well, Catherine, you know it is a distinct challenge. My my
5: children now uh, range in age from nineteen to nine, and I can tell you the, the the benefit of having perhaps more than one child is you realize how difficult each of them can be, <laughs> and how difficult they are in their eating habits. So, um, I, I think for for me, and this is not always a successful endeavor, trying to have at least one meal a day together. Um, helps make healthy choices uh, better because you can also observe, are your kids actually eating those peas that, that uh, you set out for them? And the answer can most often be no. So you just say, look, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but this is how we do it in this family. If you don't like peas, then we're going to have some raw carrots, uh, you know, along with that pasta, which seems to be the thing that every child will eat. Just give me plain pasta. And, uh, <laughs> It doesn't make for a balanced diet over time, as you well know. Well,
2: so I think that is a good idea. So at least if you have one meal, you at least you can observe what they're eating or what they're not eating, so you know. Um, well, you also begin to understand what their eating habits is. But if you're so, all right, so one meal a day. What if that's not possible, though? Yes, and that's that's another good point. I
5: think um, you know, along with the one meal a day, if possible, do it. And even if it's not, get your kids invested in what you're eating. So give them some guidelines is my suggestion. You know, you need, we're going to have one protein, one carb, you know, one vegetable, one fruit. And then maybe have a discussion about what fits into each of those categories and get them invested in what they might like to have, you know, from each of those food groups and have them plan a meal. And And frankly, it doesn't have to be elaborate. So what if every Monday is, Know, meatloaf Monday, or if you're a vegetarian, you know tofu uh, Monday. But you you decide and let your kids be invested in those choices. And and at least my experience is they're a lot more likely to try things and then also to branch out from that. Um, my 14 uh, year old son happens to eat almost anything that he can put hot sauce on. Who knew? And that includes
2: all of his vegetables. All right. So you have four uh, four kids. Obviously, they have different eating habits, different likes, etc. But Mrs. Obama, she, I mean, she's taken this on uh, this healthy eating for our children, and she's gone around, I guess, to the different to cafeterias, talk at school cafeterias around the, the country, and uh, observed what children eat. Uh, I know. What, and but one of the problems is in New York State, which is where I am. Um, they. Took away some of the foods in some of these cafeterias uh, that were not he- that you know they were not healthy foods, replaced them with healthy foods, and the kids refused to eat it. They wouldn't eat it. They would actually find them dumping the food out at the end of lunch period into the garbage pails and not eating it at all.
5: Yes. Well, I have never known a, a child under those circumstances to starve. So, um, you know, I've heard lots of, uh, you know, complaints about food being wasted. But my my sense is over time, they get hungry enough, they will eat it. But you know what, Catherine, those choices have to be backed up at home. So if they know they can just go home and have a bunch of junk, why would they eat the healthier choices offered at school? So... I, I think Michelle Obama was correct uh, that it is a partnership between home and school. So it's a short-term problem, in my view, that these kids are rejecting these foods. If, if we continue to offer them and we tell them who's in charge, us, not them, um, and that there really aren't any other options, my guess is they will be hungry enough over time to eat these foods. Yes. And that's I not to suggest that we're force-feeding them. It's, it's simply that... You know, you, you make them hopefully inviting options, but to suggest that, you know, for a couple of days they're not interested in these choices is really not surprising if, if they've had, you know, junk food offering, you know, for so long.
2: Yeah. Uh, Crystal, I agree with you, but unfortunately here in, in actually some of the communities, they then went back to serving the food that they, you know, the stuff that wasn't good for them and and, and stopped serving some of these healthier foods. I, I was shocked actually, but they have done that because I think you're right. After a while, the kids will get used to it. They have to be introduced to healthy foods. It takes time. It's a, sort of an evolutionary process, but at some point they begin to, experience the good food and begin to like it and uh yeah and hopefully that the the same thing will happen at home there is sign- that the parents have to support it but i don't see that either i see well,
5: these, I, yeah. I think you're right i and you know we have a joke in my house that you know everyone will come to love kale but you know apparently it's still true that i'm the only one but <laughs> i persist Catherine, and i serve it in many delightful ways uh no one no one else in my house agrees with that but um the point is, like you said, um, keep offering these things, and it's it's really shocking that the school system would make the transition back so quickly. Um, although I suppose culturally it's not. Um, again, I think people get really concerned that you know somehow their children are going to starve. But um, as we know by the obesity epidemic in this country, that's you know really not the case. They may be starving nutritionally in the sense that they're not getting the nutrients and vitamins they need to grow into healthy adults, but they're certainly not, not starving from lack of empty calories.
2: Well, you have four children, so and they kind of run the game. You have a 19-year-old and a 9-year-old. So, yes. So 10 years, that's a, kind of a big span. Do you see any difference in the eating habits of, say, your 9-year-old and their friends and your 19-year-old and his or her friends?
5: Yes, you know, it's interesting, Catherine, and I I would have expected an opposite trajectory, but it's my younger, my youngest child in particular, who is the most particular about her food choices. And I assumed, because it's a family of four, that she would adapt to eating that all the older siblings eventually came to, to eat. So, in fact, she would be more adventurous in her eating. But exactly the opposite is true. And it, it it's fascinating to me to see that it's not just her, but it's also her generation of friends. And I wonder if it's, you know, part of this catering to our children a little too much. Um, I think even 10 years ago, um, our expectations around food and kids was different. And we may have said, this is what we're having for dinner. Try it. If you don't like it, have a bowl of cereal or a peanut butter sandwich if you're not, you know, you don't have a peanut allergy. Um, but now we're a little less willing to do that for some reason. So when I have my, uh, you know, nine-year-old friends over, um, they also only want plain pasta to eat. And, and and that does give me, you know, some concern, Catherine, because um, as delicious as it is, it's not providing them the nutrition they need, but also, more importantly, um, the adventurousness, I think, that we all hope for our kids to have so that they can have a, you know, a very diet and, frankly, fun with eating.
2: Yeah, I think it kind of relates to the overall parenting. Uh, a difference in parenting maybe in the past 10 years, past 20 years, you know, sort of associated with the helicopter parents, not wanting your child to suffer in any way, not wanting them to be uncomfortable, not wanting them to feel like they're less than, not wanting them to lose a soccer game, not wanting them to eat food they don't want to eat. I think it kind of ties into all of that, and I can go back to my own generation, and I have a very healthy attitude towards eating, and so do my boys who are older than your your kids, but... Um, it was always like, this is what there is for dinner, and if you don't want it, I'm not going to make something else for you, just th- that's it, but you don't have yes. to eat it. I would never force feed anybody. If you're not hungry, then fine, don't eat it, but I'm not making another dinner for you. I don't think that's a good See, I don't think it's a good thing to replace it because that, you know, even if you're replacing it with a peanut butter sandwich, at least that's been my sort of my parenting um uh, sort of, mantra when it comes to food and so they're all good eaters I mean they really will eat vegetables and and even the kale that (laughs) Um, yes terrific I I have to come to your house that's good right exactly but uh yeah I think this kind of like you know this this pampering I guess is the word and I think that is truer of say the nine-year-olds that you're talking about in your daughter's generation um and I don't think that's a good thing I think that's a not a good direction that we're going in
5: you know, I don't either, and I think what happens sometimes, at least for my youngest before, um, you know, she wants to be feel a bit special and gain a bit of attention, so I think it's also an attention-seeking mechanism, but what I think in the long run adults sometimes fail to realize is that it's, you know, a lot more painful for us, and, um, and that's not good either, because ultimately, if every mealtime is a struggle, um, that really brings stress to the family, and everybody's unhappy, so... Um, I do like the idea that you know we're not starving our kids in the sense that we do offer them one option, but I'm very firm about the idea that they have to go get it and execute on it, eat it with us, and then not i don't want to hear the rest of the night
2: about them being hungry
5: yes. <laughs> so i, I, you I don't want that to be the
2: focus of the conversation
5: exactly exactly and and it definitely is a challenge, and you know on any given day someone not might not feel well, which is also okay but um you know, I think that what you said is also very important. That teaching any child that they have to eat is is really a mistake because then they're eating for, you know, all the reasons that don't involve hunger, and that's just a bad life lesson.
2: Crystal, what about in the schools now? Okay, with nine-year-olds, you have uh, sports events and you have all other kinds of events besides sports, obviously. But um, what do do mothers? Still do these like bake sales, and it has to cookies and candies and and cakes and cupcakes and stuff. Or do they have do they sell food to you know for make to make monies for the teams with healthy foods, or how does that work? Well, you know, that's it, it's a great question,
5: Catherine, and, and uh, actually my, my terrific writing partner, Phoebe, has a lot to say on this subject. I wish she she could join us because yeah. she's from London. The food culture is very different, and she used to joke her, her her girls are now teenagers, but when they were young and, say, had a soccer game, uh, there was often a snack offered before the game and right after, and she often wondered what the point of all that running around is if they just replaced you know, their exercise time with empty calories. Um, And we do see, I think, still a bit of that in the American schools. Um, You know, the rewards still for birthday celebrations are, you know, cupcakes and candy, um, you know, around the holidays, uh, Halloween. Um, We're still giving our kids lots of candy in schools. And it's funny because I think that even if at home we allow some of that, um, we really have cut back on the excess, and I don't think that, so far, at least as I've observed, that's happening in schools. Now,
2: my kids' school doesn't offer soda, which I think is terrific. Um, but I also know that's not the case,
4: you know, everywhere.
2: In other words, there are soda machines in all of these schools. But in your school, or your in your children's school, they took out the soda machines. Or were they, they, were they did. Dead? Yeah, and replaced they did it and with
5: what? They have, you know, the one thing I'm still not thrilled about are some of the electrolyte drinks because I think they have a lot of sugar, like the Gatorades and vitamin waters, but they also just have water options, which is good, and they always have water available, you know, even without purchase, which is which is great.
2: What was the kids' response? I mean, have, have they missed it? Were they upset, or are they, have they adapted, or... Well, here's an
5: interesting note, Catherine. At least with my kids, my teenagers are a bit snobbish about the idea of soda, and they really don't think people should drink it. Um, it. It's interesting what cause they take up. They're happy to eat chocolate cake, but uh, soda to them, it's sort of a matter of pride. That uh, you know, it's not particularly good for you. It's not good for your skin, and it doesn't seem to be as cool to 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 drink it. So. I think we've made some progress on that front, um, you know, at least in this small community of teenagers that that
2: I know. Uh, that's soda. What about the other foods that they can buy in, in your, not necessarily, I guess, in the cafeteria, but they have all those machines and stuff? Are they in, in your kid's school? Well, you've got the whole nine-years-old elementary school up into high school. So what's available to them besides just the cafeteria, the food in the cafeteria?
5: Yeah, they definitely have some, you know, less healthy options, although my kids and and, and Phoebe has a difference here too because her kids are in public school, my kids are in private school. So really in private school you do have a lot more leverage in terms of insisting on healthier choices. So um, there's a lot less junk in the food machines, Um, although if we measure by, you know, how much sugar a granola bar has in it, we could, you know, have that argument too, that maybe it's not that much healthier um, but I do think that these machines are still in schools, um, not, for example, at my kid's school, which is on one campus but is a through K-12 school, the, the elementary school children actually are not allowed access to the vending machines. So it's not until you're in the middle school that you are allowed to make those choices. So they really view it as a privilege, and certainly they avail themselves of it once they reach, you know, that level in the school. But, um, yeah, they still exist, certainly. Um, the good news is I think in the cafeterias, even at the elementary school level now, they offer a salad bar, for instance, at lunchtime, which they didn't used to do when my 19-year-old was that age. Um, you know, the salad bar was restricted to the older kids, but I think that they're, they're finding that a way to get younger kids involved in eating fruits and vegetables is to let them sample them when they're young, and I think that's
2: a really good thing. Yeah, I think if we're going to wait. For, I'm not sure what the reasoning was behind it. Why would you wait till middle school or high school, you're saying, before you're allowed to have a salad? <laughs> I think, <laughs> did, Frank,
5: well, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense. It probably, from their perspective, it was a big mess <laughs> to allow the kids was... to help themselves to the salad bar. But they they bit the bullet and, and allowed it to happen. And, and I know that um, at least my youngest child thinks it's you know a big privilege to do it. And, wow, if she thinks it's a big privilege to have fruit and vegetables,
2: that's great. Well, Crystal, you mentioned one thing, and I think it's really important because you said your kids go to private school, and Phoebe's kids go to, no, your kids go to private school, yeah, and her kids go to public school, and there is a big difference, or is there a big difference? And what does that say? So, parents who have kids in private school, I've been, I've been, I went to private school and public school both, and um, they are we saying our kids in private school are definitely. Able to make better choices, and our public school system, they can't or don't, or I mean, I, is that's
5: there? A, a, that's a yeah. good question. I would say, generally, you know, at least my experience in the community where I live is that um, you know, smaller communities generally are able to make choices more quickly and and potentially more appropriately. I mean, your suggestion that you know, in, in New York State, what's happening is these good food choices were replaced almost immediately with the junk food again, um, suggests that the parents were not able, or they are either part of the clamor or unable to put the pressure that you know, needed to bear upon the school system to make the right decision. Um, so I would say, I think, yes, generally in a, in a private school, um, the parents community is able to apply the pressure they want to get the better food choices. Um, but I would also see what I see with, with Phoebe and her kids and other public school children is, If they or their parents don't want them to participate in this junk food offering, they simply pack their lunch, which at my kids' school is not an option. It's a family meal-style cafeteria and setting, you know, except for the salad bar, and, um, you know, the offering is what it is. But um, in most of the public schools, you can, you know, pack your lunch if you don't want to participate in those food choices.
2: Yeah, so I guess whatever school system you're in, there are ways of getting around eating making poor food choices, so uh, my kids went to a suburban public school, good school system, so most of the time, I did pack their lunch, and uh, and that worked out well, although um, sometimes busy parents don't have the chance to do that, or if you have two working parents, so they just you know, send the kids off to school and eat whatever it is in the cafeteria. Well, so do you think we're getting anywhere with this? Is it getting better or worse, the situation? Are our kids actually eating? Are, are we making progress? I just see, and, and I guess, I, you know, I don't want to put a downer on it, but I've I've talked about this on the show before. I travel a lot. I go, I'm in airports a lot in uh, different uh, cities, different countries. And, well, different cities. Let's take the United States. And, boy, I think that the choices that we have as adults in, in public places, we have very poor, there are not good choices for food. Uh, there are very poor choices. I mean, I see there's some changes in some of the bigger cities, like some of the New York airports. But other than that, you know, it's mostly junk food or fried foods, um, that we, you know, that are, those are our choices when we, you know, in public, in, in public situations like airports.
5: Yes, I find that quite discouraging, actually, when traveling. Um, it can be quite difficult to manage. Um, as a side note, before I you know, express my opinion about whether it's getting better or worse, I will say I actually, one of the most important reasons that I chose my children's school, I'd like to say it was all the healthy food options, but it was actually the fact that I was not allowed to pack a lunch for them <laughs> as a busy parent. So I think many people who do that every day can appreciate that. But um, I you no, know, I I agree, Catherine, that when you are traveling it can be a real challenge for children and adults, um, to find healthy fare. But frankly things that help with that are, you know, easy things that most people have on their smartphones like Yelp and you can search for almost any food offering you want. And if you're willing to put in a little F you definitely can find, you know, healthy food. And some of even the fast food chains, um, like Kava and Totle and you know, other places like that, sweet green, you can certainly make healthy choices. Now, the question is whether people will do that when they're traveling is, is another one. But I'm encouraged. I think that if people become educated about what it means to make good food choices, and I think Michelle Obama has been a part of that, um, then that's a good thing. And just becoming aware is the first step to to making those better choices. And and I do think The choices are out there. They're sometimes pricier for sure, which can be a problem. Um, But if you become educated and bring your kids
2: into that process, um, I think we can all do a bit better. How much support, because you are in Washington, D.C., and I think it's a terrific thing that Michelle Obama has done, how much support has she gotten? Or has she gotten resistance? Or has she gotten any resistance for what she's trying to do in terms of eating and, and children?
5: Well, interestingly, I think obviously we're a very isolated pocket in some ways inside the Beltway here in D.C., but at least in my community, I, I see a lot of praise for what she has done. Um, you know, you do hear on various talk shows and media outlets um, criticism that she's trying to tell us what we should do, and, you know, there is that perspective out there as well, but... I say that um, you know most people in this town believe that what she's doing is a very positive step um, because, frankly, you know the obesity epidemic costs us all. Uh, it ends up uh, these people are in the healthcare system, and and we all have to pay. So it's really to all of our advantage to not just teach ourselves, but but to educate the larger community about healthy food.
2: Yeah, well, it is. It's costing us. I think billions of dollars, the obesity uh, epidemic. Uh, not millions, but billions of dollars in health care costs. So I guess what you're saying is, I mean, it's really important. I think that Michelle Obama, or the First Lady, awareness is probably the word that she's making us aware. And, and we have that, obviously that's the first step. I'm aware that we have a problem.
5: I think that's right. The only thing is I now feel a certain pressure to grow my own vegetables because she does in her <laughs> White House garden. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm not sure that I can manage it, but but I appreciate that she's really that she's really walking the walk, although I suspect she might have a little help with that.
2: Yeah, she has help, and I have to say, Crystal, if you don't want to make, <laughs> make sandwiches or don't want to make lunches, you're not going to be doing the garden. Well, neither am I because... <laughs>
5: That's right. <laughs> that takes a lot exactly. more time, right? And yeah. especially when Whole Foods is right down the street, I have to admit that I have a weakness for the place. As some people like to call it Whole
2: Paycheck, but I think it's worth it. I agree with you, and this is not an advertisement for Whole Foods, but I, I split my time between New York City and Albany. In New York City, we have Whole Foods, but we just got... And Whole Foods here in Albany, New in Albany, New York, and and what a difference! Yeah, it's great. Uh, it opened two weeks ago, actually. So um, this isn't an advertisement, but boy, you really can get whole, fresh fruit, and and there's a qualitative difference I find between the fruits and vegetables there and say at some of the grocery stores.
5: I absolutely agree, and Catherine, I have to be something of a. a uh... A self-appointed grocery store connoisseur. It seems that I have about seven that I need to go to to meet all of my uh, demands. <laughs> and so I have, I have a chance to really, you know, give uh, certain stores a shout out. And I think on the East Coast it's getting much better. I'm a Midwestern girl where we always had vast markets with yep. great
2: layouts and selections, but it's really happening here too, which is really nice. Which is a good thing. Well, we've come to the end of the show. It's been great talking to you, as always, Crystal Walker, and uh, she's the author of Desperate in D.C. You know, I want to, we can buy your book online, bookstores everywhere, and uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Great topic.
5: Catherine, thank you, and if I may just say, people can get it most easily right now on Amazon, Desperate in D.C., in e-reader format or uh, paperback, so thank oh. you for the opportunity to talk today, and uh Anytime. Yeah, we'll talk again. There are a lot more topics to. we,
2: have to, yeah, we, have, we have to cover that we haven't covered. Oh,
5: take care, Catherine. Have yeah, a great you
2: day. You too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel.